should it'd be like we can do like the con episode we can like talk about ducks and we can just talk about the climate crisis <laughs> sure it'll come up <laughs> sorry anyways i don't know are there any are there any books we can read that uh climate change isn't going to come up at this point yeah fair enough well, let me read <laughs> old old books books from the past Mm, you can still you can still find connections i think half of it is that this is what writers are thinking about and half of it is that this is what readers are thinking about and making yeah. connections to yeah yes, it's the, the climate well, readers now i'm still uh plowing through but i mean it's not a comic but uh termination shock by neil stevenson has been a pretty interesting read so far sort of a cyberpunk look at a world affected by climate change He's got a character that's got a plan to just launch uh, sulfur torpedoes into the air. Okay. To change the climate by like sure. creating a sulfur enriched uh, atmosphere. Yeah, that's a, they're actually discussing doing that in real life, by the way. But that's also a plot point in Ministry of the Future, Kim Stanley Robinson, which I just read recently, okay. which is interesting. I'm glad I read it. Yeah, like there's lots of books about... Uh terraforming other planets but uh i don't know we might have to end up terraforming this one first yeah sounds uh, like it i think <laughs> we kind of got to get this planet on track first uh, i'm not pro terraforming they probably sounded glib and i know that not everyone knows me in real life i'm not pro terraforming planet earth but i think <laughs> i'm resigned to the fact that it's probably going to happen whether i want to yeah no there's obviously better better solutions many many better solutions but if it comes to that versus nothing, well. But what but solution? Speaking of terraforming and <laughs> geoengineering, oh, there, we go. there are some okay. interesting potentials that we could do on neighboring planets such as Mars. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, there's one line in this book, which we might talk about later, about maybe not terraforming Mars, but... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Anyways, the, the book today was uh, Mara and Turnham by Dershing Helmer. This was my pick, although Jam claimed I did, to have been the one to pick this one. <laughs> I did all my notes thinking I'm the one who picked it, but probably I was just like, yeah, Mara and Turnham sounds great. And then I just like completely <laughs> Did forgot, you make so notes about Dershing? Because I didn't I did. get a chance to do any Googling. Yes, I did. Awesome. Oh, there you go. This is a team effort then. Uh, maybe let's do a, a character building question first, and then we can talk about the artist. Okay. So I do have a character building question. Uh, my question is going to be, under what circumstances would you go to Mars? So rather than asking, would you go to Mars? Because, I mean, I think the, the question depends a lot on like, what's it like there? Am I going now or am I going 100 years from now? So I want to know what are the what are the preconditions, the pre-requirements for you to want to make a trip to Mars? Ooh. So I have I have a pretty conclusive idea of that. That's something that I've thought about a lot. And my conclusion in the matter is like I am I am Team Earth. I am Team Stay on Earth. It's a nice year. Let's fix our problems. And so like for that reason, I've never even like daydreamed about being a colonist. I'm not interested in space travel. I think space is terrifying. I don't want to do that. So the only way you're getting me to Mars is if there is a guaranteed safe carbon-free way that I can get there and return safely under under a year. That's yeah. that's I would even go if it's not terraformed. I had just have to be safe the entire time and it has to be like a well-established route. I'm not here for risk and I'm not there for moving there permanently. Not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah, I think uh, if if there was the Utopia Planitia shipyards, I could go check those out via transporter, maybe. But uh, <laughs> it's a pretty I, high bar. <laughs> yeah, I, I I kind of yeah, I don't know. I think I feel similarly to Jam, uh, which oh, I, I'm Jeff, and uh, yeah, I think that 
I am also team earth. I, I think that maybe, maybe part of this is I just feel like in my lifetime, Mars would just be a harsh environment. Like no matter how, how close we were to getting it somewhere, it still wouldn't be far enough. Like, you know, maybe my great, 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 great grandchildren could enjoy Mars, but I just feel like that's not a thing I would really get to enjoy. And like, I've seen the expanse, so I don't think uh, I would fit into the inevitable militaristic culture that would form on Mars. Uh, we don't know that it's inevitable. <laughs> yeah, Phobos and Deimos, that's not the kind of society oh, they true. have. They're a socialist <laughs> utopia, or they were until there was a revolution. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, so yeah, I think, I think, it'd be, I, honestly, like, it would be, I think, were I to have the opportunity to go and come back, I probably would, because it's just, like, then you can say, I've been to Mars, like, obviously, <laughs> like, but yeah, if, if I had to spend years traveling there, I don't think I'd be interested, and I definitely wouldn't be there for keeps, so unless there's warp technology, I don't think, uh, I don't think that's in my, in the future. Don't think that's yeah. in the cards. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I'm JD and, uh, I also don't have any particular instincts to be an explorer or like a, a first wave settler or anything like that. Like, I don't want to be like trying We're to build a bunch of comic arms. book nerds. Give us some credit. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I, I would, I, I love space. I would go to space if it was like safe and easy and affordable. Uh, I might even move to Mars depending on like what kind of society there is there. Uh, I see. <laughs> I see how it is. <laughs> it all depends on the, on the people. Yeah. Space that's is really point. about the people. That's very true. Yeah. I mean, and therefore the culture. <laughs> Yeah, if if uh, if it's if it's a Tesla venture, I'm definitely not going to Mars. Nope. nope. <laughs> Hard no. It's not hard no. Be a Tesla venture. Well, you're you're not like you're not into the whole indentured servitude idea. <laughs> Multi generational debt. No, they I don't. don't. I don't want Elon Musk to be the source of oxygen for me. They God, they no. just need you to hold up the waving robot. So it doesn't fall over. <laughs> yeah, those people don't get paid well. <laughs> They're not in a union. <laughs> the they don't get free But somehow we aren't. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so, Jam, since you've actually had a chance to do this, uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, Dershing Helmer? Yeah. So, Dershing is the Eisner nominated and Ignatz Witting. Uh, they are an independent artist. So Murray and Turnham started as a webcomic and was self-published by them, but it was a tremendously successful, huge Kickstarter. If you ever get a chance to see the hardcover, I have it uh, somewhere in my boxes here, but it's gorgeous. It has this like foil on the front. So they have been writing comics for a long time. Their other comic is The Meek, and they've also done a number of stories, I think, in in anthologies, although I can't think of any off yeah. the top of my head. Um, I think Alloy, they, they've run anthologies. Yeah, Alloy they have one. run anthologies. Yeah, and that's the one that won the Ignats, I believe. Okay. Uh, I think Alloy, there was another one too. They're from the California Bay Area, uh, but they're now in San Diego. Hmm. And also, oh, sorry, her, her pronouns are she, her, and she has a, a degree in biology from UC Berkeley, and she's currently the managing editor at Vault Comics. So she recently took on a new job. And so if you read any Vault comics, you can know that Dershing herself had a quite a, a hand in making even more comics come to life. Oh, wow. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. That's yeah. kind of a big deal. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. And it's uh, really cool. I like the idea of someone who is so good at making comics I know. being the one to decide what other comics also get made <laughs> or having some hand in it anyways. It's yeah. exciting. And I, I am... I am looking forward to see what kind of dividends uh, come from that. Uh, but before we continue our discussion of Maria Turnham itself, I did also want to do a content warning, if that's... Yes, please. Yeah. So this book contains scenes of suicide, mental health breakdowns, uh, childhood sexual abuse, and a large, a large serving of body horror. So be aware of that. Uh, definitely our discussions are probably going to 
touch on these topics. So be aware and make sure you're in a good space before listening to the rest of this podcast. And if you read the book, be mentally prepared for a lot of body horror. I, I think it's really exciting and well done, but you know, it's not everyone's, everyone's teacup. So. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, Jeff, you're the one who didn't think this was your choice. So what did you think of this book? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Damn and I can fight off screen about whose book this actually I, was. <laughs> I am. Okay. I'm going to also just, I'm going to quickly just throw in there that I feel fairly confident that you claimed this was your choice uh as but well uh, john uh, john oh, yeah yeah so john i believe it i okay. believe it my memory is like a, like a no worries. i just yeah, <laughs> I, I just figured out i will be tiebreaker there i'm just, um, I'm just making radio here yeah yeah but yeah no um so i mean i came into this cold and I will admit that I think I procrastinated on starting this a little bit because when you start this book, the very first thing that comes up is a guy trying to hang himself with a belt. And I think I definitely had a few days where I was just like, ah, no, maybe I'll read this tomorrow. Uh, you know, um, and then I finally just knuckled down and like, like read through it and then I uh, actually really like when I started it I just like couldn't stop so like once I actually did start reading I read the whole thing in one day I just sat down and read the whole thing and uh yeah it's like it's it's intense but I don't know I think maybe I finally was reading it at the right point as well this is like I don't know not to not to be too too dark but it's been like a really rough month and so I actually felt like I really related to Michael a lot in just like the kind of permeating darkness that was sort of hanging over him and I was like yeah man I get it I get that feeling like even just like it's you know like this idea that he can't commit suicide because he gets interrupted because people still need him for stuff I was just like yeah yeah I get that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, this is a, it is a very dark book. Um, I, I think it's really layered. So on the surface, it seems to be a book that's about science fiction. And it's about like, you know, this ecosystem that exists in a cave, but there's this whole meta layer, which is about like mental health and, you know, your, these existential questions as well. Uh, and I, I love this book for that. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is the thing when you get to the end, it's it's very much about like, like kind of like redemption and change and like, kind of like healing from trauma, like there's just sort of uh, the, I don't know, the kind of physical journey of the character, Michael, in some ways almost reflects his sort of psychological journey you know um yeah absolutely it's so good yeah that's exactly it there's like all these layers it's like you get this fun this fun space adventure but it's like actually about depression yeah and like the the journey through like the belly of mars is like it's all a metaphor at the same time as being like this like carefully thought out science experiment yeah like it, it could it works on both levels like it is yeah. very heavily metaphorical, but the speculative bio stuff is also really, really cool and hangs and I, together and yeah, has I like internal consistency. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah, there's so I'm reading another science fiction book right now that's like written by a scientist and like the chemistry is like absolutely perfect and he knows everything about astronomy and like uh, he can tell you exactly how to make oxygen on the moon and like, okay, that's cool. <laughs> but like, so much science fiction is like falls down when it comes to characters and this is a great example of how to do both of, how, of having a character driven story that also has that fun science stuff yeah, yeah. i agree yeah no 100 percent. and i appreciated how it did a lot with such a small cast like i was really thinking about the fact that and maybe this is just like a lot of the stuff I've been watching and reading is like these big epics full of all these characters. So I kind of enjoyed the fact that it's really just like you kind of just have like four kind of key characters like 
in a closed space. Like it's very much just about how these kind of four characters kind of interact in this sort of closed room. <laughs> yeah, and like just to sort of emphasize the metaphor, like basically the only one who's not depressed is Levy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like Rebecca's going through some stuff and like she's got her own trauma and like yeah even Kala Kala is like has like, this uh has this identity crisis and yeah like, yeah you know I've given up on trying to leave and what is even the <laughs> yeah. point of trying and uh-huh uh-huh basically living in this like well of depression for a billion years <laughs> yeah. man you think you've been depressed <laughs> wait until you've been sealed under the crust of Mars for over a billion years and watch all life on your planet and then die multiple times and there's that's still not an escape <laughs> and hang out with your own corpse at the bottom of your bedroom school <laughs> and basically every other creature you meet is like connected to you through a neural net so they're all just copies of you <laughs> totally normal <laughs> hashtag just mars things <laughs> all right um maybe let's do like a very quick overview of the plot uh, uh because i mean that's if relevant possible. i guess if someone's watching or listening to this and they haven't read it in a while just like as a review um so there's this uh space station on mars uh, Michael is um, on his way out. He is supposed, to, he basically got fired from his job because he lost his robot, Levy. And so he decides, well, I don't want to make the trip back. I'm just going to like end it here. Uh, meanwhile, Rebecca is also a scientist who just showed up and she's basically taking over his job. And so he's going to like show her the, the research site, uh, just like Quick Trip there and back and then he's on his way out and then she can take over uh but the they go to this cavern and this the the floor falls through into an even bigger cavern and they get trapped in this like underground ecosystem that nobody knew was there um they meet a uh, a creature kala who is a very strange looking alien who they are able to communicate with right away uh, and she takes them like it's it seems at first that she's trying to help out Michael get him out, although he doesn't seem too enthusiastic about leaving necessarily. He he comes and goes on the issue of like where he <laughs> He comes and goes on a lot of things. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they eventually find a kind of a reincarnation of Levy the robot as a crustacean. Because the 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 life force that has or the processor, I guess the it's called the processor. The processor that runs this environment has like reconstituted the AI from the robot into a crustacean, <laughs> and uh, eventually it comes down to like deciding whether or not to stay or leave. Yeah, and Bex initially was uh, the the second scientist. Bex, she was initially separated from all of them. Mm-hmm. And so she only comes in kind of halfway through the adventure again. And uh, some interesting conflicts happen. And she's the only one who can understand Thrip and, you know, <laughs> uh, or Thrip slash Levi. And oh, man, so interesting. Yeah, it's a really wild book. Like, I, in, in some ways, I actually regret that I didn't have time to read it a second time because I sort of just felt like, reading it the first time I was like I feel like I'm only just kind of getting the bare bones of the story and that like reading it again would sort of connect more of the dots or something like it was a lot of I don't know I felt like there's metaphor but just like everything's very strange like it's all just really strange concepts like yeah like the idea that Beck's disappears and when Bex returns, Bex can now understand all languages, you know? Um, and like, there's a whole plot line of like Le- Levi, Levy, Levy the robot. And then it's like, now Levy's a crab, you know? And it's just like, it's, it's a very surreal stuff. And I feel like there's a lot more layers and metaphor that I'm probably not seeing quite yet. You know, like if I read it again, I feel like it would, those layers would get deeper. Um, yeah. Uh, on reread, it definitely allows you to 
to see the clues more deeply, I would say. Like, Dare Shang, she does an amazing job of, from day one, it's very clear that this plot was well thought out and the clues get dropped very early on in the narrative and in in tightly metaphorical ways i mean even bex's screensaver so there's a scene where bex and uh michael are introducing themselves to each other and she wants to ask him something so she pulls up her computer and her screensaver is these uh fossilized a fossilized mother and her children who have been like preserved after a volcano or something i think oh no it's uh, uh the the green sahara the the, the sahara, sahara used yeah. to be like arable land there was farmland and grassland there and so that's when the foss these fossils were sort of laid down and now it's all uh, desert. so they were just naturally buried yeah okay i that's the part i didn't quite understand is like, like where the fossils had come from uh but yeah when you go into later in the story like bex has a lot of like complicated feelings about motherhood uh which is another like thread line that i really really love because it's not very often discussed in literature or media or society in general uh but she ends up deciding to you know you see scenes of her early on when she's first deciding to become a mother you know and it's very clear that it's this strong societal pressure that's pushing her to do this uh but she already has her passions and her missions and she's not really sure uh and then even when she has her kids she eventually makes the decision that she wants to go to mars and become a colonist you know like mm -hmm. a permanent resident of mars leaving her two kids behind and so to have that narrative you know juxtaposed against these like the mother and child you know like the literal prototypical <laughs> mother and child you know like in, in uh, adorning her desktop it really kind of speaks to the conflict that exists within her i think yeah uh, the way dershing like lays out who these characters are by like this is this such a good example of show don't tell where like we're given all the evidence like laid out on a table like here's this aspect of this character here's a uh, situation where they chose one way and here's a situation where they chose a different way compare and contrast you'll figure it out and it's like it's so good like that's that's the kind of writing I, I need to be able to do myself <laughs> <laughs> it's the type of writing we all aspire to yeah for sure. yeah like uh with Michael for example where he's like he first meets Bex and he's like completely dismissive wants nothing to do with her he wants nothing to do with anyone at this point uh and then he finds out that she has kids who are a fan of his project and immediately it's like a, a switch a, a switch flips and he's like okay suddenly i'm gonna help you out i'm gonna make sure you have a good story about me to take home like it's really important to me that you're a good mother because i have very little experience with that personally and <laughs> right yeah it just says so much about who he is without like like telling you yeah. yeah. And then like how he flips on her when he realizes that she's a colonist. Yeah. And, that like that's when he kids. really loses his, you know, loses his uh temper very severely on her. Uh -huh. uh, because like this this uh yeah, it, it's really at the core of his being. It's one of his core traumas is that he, you know, this relationship with his parents and uh the abuse that he suffered from his his family of origin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh it it definitely impacted all of his life yeah yeah that um yeah that little flashback was pretty pretty intense uh like right after they fall into the abyss and then it just cuts to like michael as a child in the pool and just like just the way it kind of just casually like throws the child ab abuse in there like you're just like mm -hmm. oh my gosh like you know like he's just interacting with this person in the swimming pool and then it's kind of implied like oh no no like now this is going to turn sexual and you're just like what is oh my god like this is really i mean it was a well-executed scene but it was also just very intense um dramatic mm -hmm. sort of also informs so much of michael's character like you see that and then you cut back to him and you're kind of like, oh, and now I understand why he's like so messed up. <laughs> yeah, and then there's a scene like this is total spoilers if for anyone who hasn't read this yet. So read it first, pause this podcast. But there's a scene 
at the end where he's figuring out like what Kala's motivation actually is. And there's like these two panels that are like flashbacks to that scene of abuse from earlier in the comic and no words in those panels. And you just realize, oh, he's made a connection here. Like Kala is actually being abusive in this situation. Like he's being gaslit that he has to stay in this place and that he can't leave. And just like brilliant character development. Yeah. And yeah. What, I, what I really like about that scene, uh, the scene, the flashback in the pool, you know, one, it's really interesting that that's the memory that comes to him at that time when he's basically, he's pretty sure he's dead you know, mm -hmm. at mm -hmm. this point. And it's, it's, you know, the life flashing before your eyes kind of thing. Uh, but also what's really interesting about a memory like that is that when you are young, it's very difficult for you to understand the context of what is happening. And you fall into, you know, you might fall into situations where you, you are raised to trust the adults around you and you have no other choice. And when you reflect on those types of memories as an adult, it, it's such a, a visceral core feeling, you know, now that you have the understanding of how inappropriate this is and how horrible this is, you're really furious at the person who did it, the people around you who didn't help, but mm. also you have this, this wound within yourself of like, why didn't I know? Why didn't I stop this? I was a participant. Mm. Uh, and so I really like the way that that memory is portrayed because Michael is an adult now and we're introduced to him as an adult and like I, I really like that it has that adult coloration over the memory of a child uh mm. I think it's really brilliantly executed but it, yeah again it speaks to a, a core wound and uh a lot of people in this book have core wounds except for maybe well, levi levi's yeah, great yeah i mean <laughs> it's good that one character is just uh, doing fine yeah Le <laughs> levi's well yeah I mean, that's the the trick is just to be a robot, a computer AI that was then granted a physical body after the fact, and yeah. then you're gonna be like, oh wow, this is so cool! Look at this! Oh my gosh! <laughs> oh, I learned how to poop. <laughs> yeah. I, I used to think things were really interesting before, but now I've got a body, and it's like even more interesting. Wow! <laughs> Definitely I mean, it has a, a good amount of comic relief coming out of Levi and even a lot of comic relief out of Thrip because when we're first introduced to this character of the crustacean, he just kind of shows up and he's just like hanging around, like literally having a, it's like a shrimp hanging on your body, just like making an annoying noise. And uh, Michael assumes it was Kala's and Kala's assumes it was Michael's. And it wasn't until like a few scenes later, it's like, so is this like your pet or whatever? And Kala's like, I thought that was your pet. He was there when I found you. <laughs> I just love the way that Kala is written too, where like you've got this creature who's like so clearly alien. Like she doesn't open her mouth to talk. Uh, she doesn't have like anything like familiar facial expressions. She like walks around on giant arms uh like not remotely humanoid at all and like at the same time like is still like a relatable character mm -hmm. like we've got four main characters basically and Kala is not the most alien of the four uh, I would argue that Levi is the the least relatable because he's like such a simple AI yeah very yeah. childlike very uh hmm. Yeah, he carries with him kind of a naivete and mm -hmm. he sees things at a surface level and he operates at a surface level, even though he has so much knowledge and uh, intelligence in, within him. Uh, but it's true, like every character has so much rounding, roundness. Mm. <laughs> every character <laughs> has a lot of roundness. Yeah, no, there's... Um... Yeah, I mean, I mean, again, it's it's just like the simplicity of kind of these like four characters, and there's not much else but for them to play off each other, right? So you have these kind of character moments after character moments that you're learning about the characters, how they interact with each other, how they speak to each other. I mean, and yes, there is the like we're kind of trapped in a cave and how do we get out? But I don't know. It's like it's really about the 
characters and their decisions, like how they want to proceed with the situation they find themselves in. Yeah, yeah. And everyone has a different decision. So like Kala's decision is like, I guess I'll stay down here forever and yeah. I'll just do what the processor tells me. And although um, the very last scene in the book, there's like the end of the story. And then there's three sort of like, I don't know. Are these in like the web like epilogue? Yeah, that's sort of the epilogue it. thing. I remember there's, the one with Trip. I don't remember the other one. So there's this three. There's one where Bex is back on Earth with her kids. So like she's made it back to Earth. She has like devices on her arms and legs because she mentions right. in the story that yes. she hasn't been taking the, the medication you need to, to like maintain your like bone the density bone and, and muscle. Yeah. Uh, so she's like has to have these devices for the rest of her life probably. But she's back on Earth with her family. Yeah. Uh, and then the next one is um, Michael with an artificial leg because I guess the the leg that the thing the fan yeah. thing got infested in couldn't be saved. He's yes. just like out in the desert exploring. Uh, and then there's a, the last one is uh, Levy and another crab thing, yeah. a bunch of little crab things like leaving a hole and walking out onto the Martian plain. Oh, that's true. It is the surface, isn't it? I didn't catch that when I was looking at this illustration. But oh, we don't wait. have Kala. Well, is that not because Kala is really just like an avatar of the processor? So you think this uh, this second crab might be the processor? Or I, I think the crab is it? connected to the processor. So I think this is the processor deciding to leave and go exploring. And uh -huh. I think Kala decides what the processor decides. I see. Okay, interesting. Oh. I hadn't thought about that. I just thought like, oh, Thrip found a girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, I mean, the color is the, the clue. This is what I'm basing it on because it's a blue crab. Yeah, yeah. Blue is very, uh, very tightly woven with the processor <laughs> as, a, as a motif. Mm -hmm. God, I love the color in this illustration. Oh, yeah. I mean, the whole, the color through the whole book is just so fantastic. I've used this book as examples in my um, color theory class because just like the the way it's used as a storytelling element and like for dr dramatic purposes and to cut between scenes it's just like it's all so great Darishing's yeah. style is incredible like so carefully executed uh it's i always think that her style reminds me a little bit of bond destiny like french mm. euro mm. comics yeah uh, and this coloring style reminds me of some euro comics as well uh you don't see this painterly look very often in western or indie style books and you know because it's got to be incredibly time consuming yeah and it yeah and, and it's, it's very well referenced and very well rendered yeah yeah and like having read meek previous to this becoming a webcomic like the uh as much as i like the meek the the jump in technical skill both within writing and drawing and coloring like everything it's just like worlds beyond like nothing nothing against the meek but the, this is when this came out I was like whoa yeah. this is amazing yeah it is clear that Dershing really doubled down uh and I I so okay so full disclosure I am I guess I am a Twitter mute with uh, <laughs> with Dershing and I'm also a Patreon supporter so I've been following her work for a really long time and I know that around this time she invested very heavily in painting courses and I'm sure okay. a lot of other courses and self-study and it really really shows uh, yeah. Dershing is uh, a perpetual student uh, which is something that I really admire about her and uh, yeah I, I agree I would say that this this leap in quality is very evident and it's just a testament to the hard work she put in mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I, I love that it's such a, a one book self-contained story I find you know the the older I get the more impressed I am by people who can do a one book graphic novel I find it so difficult to execute narratively personally I find this like mm. because comics comics are such a double-edged sword on the one hand you can you can create a much denser information on the page. So if you think of a page of comics versus a page of prose, I would argue that you could get more information to the, to the reader on one page of comics. However, 
the pacing of comics versus the pacing of prose is very different. You could get farther in time and along a plot in 10 pages of prose versus 10 pages of comics. And I, and so I find that balance very tricky, you know, like you have this pacing limitation of your page. And also there's the challenge of like how hard it is to make a comic page. Uh, but you want to get through a satisfying arc, an arc as satisfying as a novel within a reasonable page count. Mm. And being able to execute that with such a like, there's a clear beginning, middle and end in this book, not to sound simplistic, but I'm just very impressed. And like each individual character arc happening all at the same time. <laughs> very yeah, good. like the the ability to have, you've, you've got like these four characters and half of them don't show up for half of the story. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know that I would have the wherewithal to decide, oh, I'm going to just not draw my favorite character for like a year. <laughs> right. It's tough because I mean, yeah. this started as a web comic. Like this is not a comic that feels like it naturally fits into a webcomic type ecosystem. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's a really good webcomic, but... And it's... it is still a webcomic. The whole thing is available yeah. um, for anyone who is curious about reading this work. But it, if you sat down and said to yourself, I'm going to make a webcomic, I'm not sure that this is the story that would sort of naturally come together. Right. I don't know. It depends. Webcomics is so broad, right? That's true. It's so broad. And it's, uh, I would agree with you that this type of comic is very, very difficult to market mm-hmm. with its pacing. Like I find long, long form comics. Yeah, it's a, it's a different world. And I mean, John, you know, this <laughs> much yeah. better than I do, I think. <laughs> yeah, this is, um, yeah, this is sort of the kind of webcomic I mean, I guess not science fiction, but just like in terms of the presentation, this is the kind of webcomic I find myself making. And then I'm, yeah, I'm like, I have no idea how you get people to actually read it. Like you just sort of put, <laughs> you're putting a graphic novel out for free and just hoping for the best. But yeah, I really quickly, I wanted to also just shout out the lettering. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I would like, agree with that. Um, like the, you guys are hundred percent about the color, but like, there's some really interesting things with the lettering, especially in terms of overlapping speech bubbles, like, mm. which I think initially you might think is, I don't know, a mistake, but like I'm looking at it and I'm seeing that it's like someone talking over someone else, right? And it's done with intent. So it's just like the speech balloons themselves are the way they flow, the way like you have um, two people having a conversation and the way that the balloons overlap or inter- interact with each other they're telling their own story. Like, I don't know, I don't often flag the lettering, but this was one where I was just like, wow, that's really good lettering. Um, yeah. And yeah, uh, balloon placement. And also I really like the way she draws balloons. I they got mm. this vector quality to them. Uh, mm. I'm pretty yeah. sure they are vector, but they're, they still look really good. I can never, I can't. Yeah. I find it hard to get vectors to look this good. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, there's a nice kind of, I don't know and are I think in a way it's because they're not so uniform that they have that yeah that kind of chunky yeah they're chunky and they are organic you're really right about that yeah and sometimes they vary depending on the character too like uh is it the processor I think who has like a different like a consistently different style of like balloon a few of them do like they have different styles for like you know, incoming transmission and things like that. And mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. There's also some really, really nice examples of hand-drawn sound effects in this work as well. So if you're a student of comics and you want to see what some good hand-drawn sound effects look like, uh, there's some really nicely, nicely executed onomatopoeia in here, I find, especially when you're in such an alien place. Mm. Uh you know, an inhuman kind of world and being able to add that texture and that foley to a silent work, you know, as comics are naturally silent. Uh, it's really fun. Yeah. I also want to comment on how well written uh, Rebecca is as a character. Like I also follow Dershing on Twitter and I remember her posting a little bit about the kind of research that she was doing to, to write a character who's from Nigeria when Dershing is not from Nigeria. And uh, I think I, I mean, I'm obviously not from Nigeria either. So I, if there's any mistakes in here, I can't find them. But also, 
and I'm going to compare it to this other book I just I mentioned earlier. So I'm reading this book uh, called Artemis by Andy Weir, and in, I'm really enjoying this book. It's good, but the, there's just something about the characters where like he's writing a lot of characters that uh, I don't know. They just they don't ring true, and they're mm -hmm. not. Like there's just something about them where I'm like, okay, I can tell by reading this character that you are not from the same demographic as this character. And I'm also not from that group. So like, I can't tell you what the mistakes are. I just like feel that they're kind of there. Mm -hmm. And I don't get that sense from Mara and Turnham at all. And I, and I think it all comes down to like, she did, she did her homework. She had to beta reader. She like watched a bunch of Nigerian movies and like went and asked questions and did research. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, this is, this is what I tell all my students now when we do our character design course and our world building stuff where I'm just like, you know, if you're going outside of your lived experience, you have to do some research. It's like, you got to do your homework. You got to figure this stuff out. You can't just like pull it out of your ass and like expect that people are going to like understand what your intentions are, you know, like you have to put in put in some work you know yeah but I mean to even echo what you've said John like I'm really grateful for Bex's inclusion as a Nigerian character because like it's something so specific right mm -hmm. and it doesn't have yeah, to be that specific key. that's like super like, that's a huge part of it yeah I mean it's so much color and detail that didn't have to be there uh, -huh. uh it's managed like Dershink does a great job of like weaving this identity into this character so that, you know, when you see Bex, there's no way to, you know, when you read her and you read her life story, it's now impossible to extract her from our identity. But, you know, that was a writer choice. Uh, and yeah, Dershing chose to swing to the fences and, and hit it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, no, all the characters feel very, I don't know authentic real like i don't know it's yeah it it, it it doesn't feel even even like kala the alien character it's like it feels like an alien like i don't know mm -hmm. how to like i mean obviously that's not something quantifiable but like it yeah but she has a certain like pattern to her speech that isn't quite right like it's fluent english yeah. but you know she obviously lacks a lot of cultural understanding and the cultural nuance and this awkwardness comes up between herself and Michael very very often uh, but you even see this this type of detail in the the very beginning of the book where you meet more of Michael's colleagues and it's just like a really interesting uh, assortment of people we don't get a lot of time with them but we we definitely at least I got the sense that it's like there's a lot of depth to these characters that's uh, left off the page but is allowed to shine through in these character details and mannerisms and details of their uh clothing you know and the way that they keep yeah. their 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 appearance you know like for the i think it's it's gojo you know the, the ship commander she's very like prim and uh just very well kept very clean her uniform is like immaculate but then some of the other scientists like the the spanish speaking one he's like kind of unkempt he's got this like huge beard <laughs> he's wearing this like stained t-shirt that says number one dad like there's, there's <laughs> such a a gulf between them <laughs> yeah and i love that it's like this international space station it feels very much like near future like post nasa mm -hmm. Like this yeah. is what it might actually look like. Yeah, the times, the time period of this, um, of this work is non-specific. I think. I don't. Yeah, I don't think it tells us the year, but it's like got to be the near future at least. Yes. Yeah. Like it, there's a lot of cultural touchstones that feel kind of just out of reach. Like this mm -hmm. could be maybe two to three generations away. I don't know. Maybe yeah. not even. Yeah. But uh, there's a lot in the technology that speaks to like, yeah, it's in it's in the future. But I think even I, I, I agree with you, like even the fact that we have such a collaborative international space station happening, it just it's like, wow, that would be nice. I don't know. I feel like we, we have there are places. Space yeah, space, yeah, space, you're more likely to get that, like people actually cooperating, at least in when it comes to the people actually doing the work rather than the people paying for the programs. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Yeah. <laughs>
hey, it's called science fiction for a reason. That's true. Um, That's true. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, yeah, no, I I enjoyed this quite a bit. As uh, I wanted to ask you, you guys were talking about an epilogue, and then I was just double checking uh, on the website because um, I feel like I've when I go to the last page, like for me, it's basically just them opening up the 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 wall and finding Michael on the other side. Like, oh, yeah, that is the warm. canonical end. Uh, and oh, I think okay. probably this epilogue is only in the the ebook version or the print. I have the print version, so it's there. It should be in the print version uh, as well. Okay. Yeah, so this is here. Like- I mean, this isn't going to help anyone listening, uh, but I can show you Jeff really quick the three. Oh, I see. Oh, that's cool. Ah, okay. Well, no, I'm just, I'm glad that I didn't just forget to click on something. Um. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I read this as a webcomic first, of course, before yeah. the Kickstarter for it. And uh, so I didn't have those three panels either when I first, the first time I read it, but I'd forgotten that they weren't there. They seem super important. I would agree. I feel like I, I have that same memory, JD, like with the the canonical ending I guess if you want to say that and it feels kind of abrupt Mm. Uh, and I'm sure that's obviously very intentional but uh it definitely leaves a lot of questions which is a good way to end a book but it's it's definitely like whoa he's actually alive all along Uh, cut so I mean it brings up all of these uh questions immediately because throughout the whole book there's this kind of lingering question of like how much of this is really happening how much is mm. you know a hallucination you know maybe michael is dead you know and it you oh, know i didn't even think of that well yeah there's this whole scene in the end where he's he's very viscerally dying i guess if you want to think yeah. of it that way it seems like his whole body is being dissolved and remade in conjunction with the processor and the decisions that the processor is making towards the end and then with that last scene it kind of brings it back to reality of like, oh, he is really alive. Hmm. He didn't fully die in the end there. Yeah, well, he's looking a lot better in that last panel too. Relatively speaking. (laughs) He doesn't have mushrooms growing out of his eyes or anything. Uh, Yeah, his eye did recover. And this is why it looks like uh, kind of a true dissolution of the self in this uh, this scene with the processor because a lot ah. of this damage although then you have the epilogue where he lost his leg so yeah it's really unclear yeah how much of him gets remade and I think I don't know it's not a bad thing for some things to be unclear I like that oh, the absolutely. prologue yeah. is just these three panels yeah and we're not given any because as much as I want to know like okay what happened when Rebecca went back home um like I don't need that information it's not essential to the story mm. yeah no and it's it's just like kind of a fun thing to think about it allows the book to to live on in your imagination yeah. of like oh what could happen to these characters oh how's Michael doing I hope he's okay <laughs> <laughs> I mean yeah I don't know in a, in a lot of ways I sort of felt like this book sort of almost felt like a long meditation on kind of like depression and suicide and it's sort of like you know it's it, it, you start the book with Michael planning to kill himself and then you go through this long kind of almost surreal experience under under this cave and the end result is that Michael kind of yeah like I don't know chooses to live and like yeah and he doesn't make that decision until the very end yeah uh, he's he's very much dragging his feet throughout the whole book and I think it's <laughs> You know, it's a little bit this motivation of uh, of even Bex coming into the equation and Bex being willing to change. That mm, starts yeah. to kind of turn the tide for him. You know, he starts fighting for the sake of Bex getting back to her children, you know, speaking again to that kind of core wound and this core ethos that mm-hmm. he's like a mother needs to be there for her children. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And like, I like that she's got like as big an arc as he does too, where she, he like she goes through like she goes through this same like deep chasm where she's like coming to terms with the fact that her whole life she's been sort of constantly on the run from failure and and always chasing the new thing to make sure that she keeps succeeding keeps being on top of everything Mm -hmm. like keeping all the plates spinning etc uh and, and 
like, I feel like her arc is maybe that she's come to terms with the fact that it's possible for her to make a mistake and then to go back and fix it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but it's never too late. I think probably she carried that idea for a while that it's like, it's not possible to go back. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like, because she chose not to take the drugs, you know, she kind of uh-huh. thought this she was a one-way street. Forward. That's the only way to go. Mm-hmm. And if any, if she stumbles and, and anything goes wrong, it's like, well, like you can't, you, you can't go back. You can't look back. You can't fix mistakes. You just have to go forward. Yeah. 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 Which I will say, I think the, um, the book really changed for me when Bex returns. Cause like, I really felt like at the beginning, I felt like this was Michael's story and that all of this other stuff was kind of a preamble to get him in the cave. And so then when Bex sort of returns again and kills Kala, like that was a definite like record scratch moment of just <laughs> like, whoa, what? And, and then it's like the whole narrative shifts and then you're just, now it's from, Bex's perspective and it's her experience and her goals are so different from Michael's yeah and like she doesn't understand him at all yeah, yeah. She she's very less- determined like you know it's weird that you want to kill yourself because I would like to survive and get out of this cave <laughs> as soon as possible yeah <laughs> yeah and just I mean it sets up both of them and so then when they're kind of like bouncing off each other it like you kind of understand where both characters are coming from. So it makes the conflict make more sense because now you really understand both both sides, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you know, Bex wants to get out of there and Michael's not so sure he wants to. And like, um yeah, yeah just it all kind of what yeah, I I really like the way everything kind of weaves together at the end. Yeah. And it was another point where I felt that it really underscored of like, oh, there is, there is a reality element happening here Mm. because there was, again, in the first half of this book, a lot of questions where it's like, oh, Michael thought he was dying, you know, and he's constantly like second guessing himself, but he's like, oh, but I feel pain, but these things are really weird, you know, and it's, it's Mm. uh, always difficult to tell like how much is true and he he kind of carries this doubt within himself as well he's like Mm -hmm. i don't know really are you sure and then the presence of bex and bex being like no i can see that thing too i can talk to these weird dudes that are trying to kill me you know (laughs) i can see thrip and thrip is also levi by the way you know (laughs) and this is really weird you know it that really brings michael back to reality and i think brings the reader myself back to reality as well it'd be like whoa all this stuff, I have a, stuff a question. Is, is real speaking, the speaking of things that may or may not be real, remember they find like the basically the body of uh, Levi in the in the pond yes. earlier on, but then later on they fi- also find the body of Levi in a cavern. Strange, right? So I wonder if maybe the first one was a fake, meant to redirect them and like keep them underground. Oh. Well, there is that scene later on where the processor makes Bex a flower. Yeah. And, and con- like the processor is constantly making new callas. Yeah. So the processor is definitely capable of constructing things and will, you know, I mean, that that handing of the flower is a very clear bit at emotional manipulation of like, mm-hmm. you know, welcome, feel at peace, you're here, you know, and, it's and then he Michael. pulls the flower apart and it's like, yeah. oh, this is fake. <laughs> and and even that is a pretty significant moment for Michael, I think, of like, uh-huh. how much of this is fake? Again, like calling mm-hmm. into question of like, okay, and now we know that it's it's real in the sense that things are happening physically, but then how much of it is being orchestrated by the, the processor uh-huh. in like this, <laughs> this Truman Show Hall of Mirrors, right? Yeah, it's so interesting because like, I feel like maybe the only actual survivor from the previous life on mars is the processor yes kala died multiple times all these creatures are connected to the processor they're all basically manufactured yeah they're biological machines i think is how they're described right so basically none of them are authentic original martian creatures Mm. which is like really interesting it's basically the one entity that's that's my interpretation of it anyways yeah it almost feels like yeah so it this is never explicitly dealt with i think but kala is one of the last 
you know, survivors, even though it turns out she was dead, of this Martian society, mm-hmm. right? So there was a full Martian society and yeah, some- And there was a real Kala. Climate-related catastrophe was happening. And then question mark, question mark, something happened. But like, was the processor- a machine created by Kala's society or was it older than Kala's society? Because there is oh. this, there is this moment that Kala, you know, also describes of like, yeah, I came down here and I don't know what this ecosystem even is or where it had come from, huh. you know? And so it almost, uh, I'm not clear on whether the processor and Kala's societies are related. But they are both Martian. And was the processor always constructed kind of like Levi, right? Right. Was the processor always an AI, but a biological AI? There's a lot of really interesting stuff to to pick apart, I think. Yeah, yeah. There's there's one scene where the processor is saying how Kala, because this is what I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to find it in a hurry here, but there the process the and the processor lies so like yeah who knows what's true but uh the processor describes it as kala was the last survivor a billion years ago or whatever and came underground and this this whole ecosystem is designed to keep kala alive but then kala died and so they uh, it just made a new kala yeah get in better with the ecosystem yeah which is what gave me kind of the impression that like kala came down here and found this ecosystem and wasn't huh. sure what it was trying to preserve and the I processor just kind of like hmm. brought her in and it's like nope sorry you know <laughs> like you're trapped here now you're part of the thing very interesting yeah so it, it is very interesting to also think of these I just watched a really interesting YouTube video going into the math of whether statistically more alien societies are older than us or younger than us. And so Ooh. it's like, you have to take the implicit assumption that alien societies exist. Uh-huh. Uh, but then statistically, so the ending of this video is that more societies are older than us. Few of them are much, much older than us, but most of them are going to be older than our society based on just statistical math and uh, you know the distribution of probabilities and things like that. And so if a society like this existed, it's statistically more likely that it is uh, Mm -hmm. something that's 10 or 20 generations beyond us Mm -hmm. on a societal level. And so, although so much depends on like what numbers you plug into the equation and there's so many things that are unknown. Oh yeah. There's, there's a lot of depth in this video. It's 30 minutes of math, but, (laughs) (laughs) but I found it really interesting. And so that's what kind of gave me the idea of like, maybe there were two Martian societies. Yeah. There was the Uh one that created the processor, which died first. And then there was Kala's one, which then died. Right. But who knows? It's hard to say. This is, this is what's so great about science fiction. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And from a spec bio perspective, I love, I love the creature design in this book. Mm, yeah i love thigh friend so weird oh that is like grows big and then stays small and that uh, is the one of the weirdest things i've ever seen in injected into a book it's like (laughs) he just gets this like parasite on his thigh and like yeah it's just sort of like explodes into this giant spiraling umbrella sometimes and then sometimes yeah contracts away and like just it's it's again I feel like this is a testament to Dershing because I feel like this could look really stupid in a character design it could look really Mm -hmm. awkward if you're not doing it right and Dershing manages to make a guy with like basically a giant spiraling umbrella on his thigh, like not look completely ridiculous. Like <laughs> it looks ridiculous sometimes, but in a good way, I think. Yeah. Or like, <laughs> sort of, it, you, you get it. You're like, it may, yeah. you kind of understand what's going on with this thing, even though it looks really weird, but like you want it to look weird because it's an alien thing. So like, and there's almost no analog for it on earth. Like there are certainly right. sea creatures that might have a similar <laughs> behavior, but it's not something that, many people have an intimate familiarity with so even these sea creatures look extremely alien to us and mm-hmm. uh yeah you're right this illustration of this foundationally alien creature still manages to look real you know it mm-hmm. looks it looks like it's part of the 
of the world. Yeah, I like the the worm things that are hunting Bex for a while. Yeah, with the big legs. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, it's so sad. Sad yeah. about a death of a weird worm. Yeah. <laughs> and just like, just so weird. Like, they, one of them, the one that's dying asks for water. And so, in a moment of like, possibly feeling a little bit guilty, like she brings. She brings it like a bowl of water and it like it tastes the water and says, Oh, you boiled this. This isn't what I need, and then dies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It but, only wanted the water her. to upload its memories. The worm forgives her for that. Yeah. <laughs> Even yeah. if his dying breath, he's like, it's okay, you didn't know. And then he just yeah. dies forever. <laughs> yeah. You've just been trying to take a digit from you. <laughs> <laughs> just a small one. Regenerate it later. It's not a big yeah. deal. Yeah. Well, I, enjoy, I, I enjoyed the, that as like an introduction to the idea that Bex has this communication ability now because, <laughs> um, again, it's like it's a weird set of dialogue, but it's sort of like, I felt like it really makes sense where you have these like weird, I don't know, bug worm creatures or whatever that just want to eat part of Bex. And it's like, but they're, they're, they're communicating because Bex can communicate with anything. And it's just like, you know, these creatures are running on instinct and they're just like, well, we got to eat. So we want to eat part of you. And it's like, it's nothing personal, but we, yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's our job to go and sample the information from all of the, the creatures underground and you're new. Yeah. So we have to sample you. Yeah. It's, like, it almost feels like, I, I think it definitely feels like a biological function. You know, like mm. a lot of the ways that these creatures work together almost feels like you know, cells and mitochondria working together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's described as an ecosystem and it definitely, mm -hmm. even if it's artificial, it's still clearly an ecosystem. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, we talked for a long time about this fantastic book. Any final thoughts? Read it. <laughs> um, unless read you it. are not suited to the content warnings that we described at the beginning. Yeah, re read it when you're in the right headspace. <laughs> Um, like I feel I read a lot of prose books uh, and I I mean maybe this is a betrayal of a, being a trade reader but often I feel like the there are still a lot of prose books that are way better than any comics that we have yet but this is one of those comics that's like mm, this is better than a lot of prose books mm. yeah it's definitely better than a lot of prose books I've read yeah it's a good it was a very good one it, it utilizes the medium effectively in multiple ways like i think the the visuals and the drawings like the lettering the coloring like everything's in aid of the story right it, it just this wouldn't read the same way as prose this wouldn't read the same way as a live action movie or something like it being a comic is part of what makes this work yeah you know and I think that's maybe the mark of a good comic where it's like, this couldn't really be turned into something else. It's like, no, this had to be a comic, right? Mm -hmm. uh, shout outs. So uh, shout outs. I do. I would like to shout out Vatu, which recently completed Ooh. its four oh. book run. Oh, I got to remember yeah. to buy that still. Thank you. Uh, yes, yes. I, I got the, yeah. I got in on the Kickstarter. So a Kickstarter, yeah, not, not a non-Kickstarter. <laughs> <laughs> make that thing is running a fundraising campaign right now for the fourth hardcover book and i think probably you can get all the books at some point i only knew the fourth one so i just found it and then stopped reading but uh yeah vachu completed its run uh wow. over 1200 pages i think and uh it's it's good you know <laughs> like, like you know it's like watching a football go through the thing it's like it's good you know? <laughs> 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 i thought the ending was really strong uh we've covered batu uh i think up to its second book uh in uh, an earlier episode one volume did we just do one yeah i can't remember we've done at least a little i'm i think i'm now two books behind so i'm gonna, gonna catch up <laughs> um that's exciting which i'd love to Love to talk more. I would love to review the rest of Vatu and do the whole thing. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah sure, it would be another long I'm series. Sure, I'm sure Evan would appreciate the football metaphor too. <laughs> yeah, you, we know. Part. Yeah, <laughs> very appropriate. But uh, congratulations, Evan. Yeah. I think. Congratulations to you. 
Yeah, no, great stuff. Okay, so I'm Jeff Ellis, and my shout out is going to be in a prose book. This is called The Next Supper by Corey Mintz. And as a food critic who started a book about restaurants, and then the pandemic uh, happened and he finished it, but it's each chapter is looking at a different style of restaurant. So it looks at like the celebrity chef restaurant, fast casual, fast food, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just a really fascinating read. And he really digs into the ethics of eating out. Mm. And it's like, basically the, the short premise is like, I love eating out. I want everyone to be able to eat out, but I also want everyone to feel like they have done their ethical due diligence when they eat out. And so we mm-hmm. need to make changes to our food system so that that can be possible. Um, it's like a lot of, a lot of concern about where the ingredients are sourced and a lot of concern about the way staff get paid. And I mean, hundred percent, I read this and I was like, I have to delete DoorDash immediately and stop mm-hmm. using it as an app. So yeah, I highly recommend read this book. It's a real page turner, even though it's just about food. It's great. All right. I'm going to shout out uh, Don't Go Without Me by Rosemary Valero O'Connell, uh, which is a book I got from a short box press recently. And I keep going back to short box and buying books for them because they have such good books. Uh, and it's a series of short stories. They're all very surreal, very weird, and just amazing art and like amazing stories. And it's a really good book. Yeah, I got that one on Kickstarter. No regrets. Uh, The Short Box Comic Fair is happening right now, depending on when this comes up. It's on through the end of October 2022. Okay, Uh, this podcast should be up when it's still on then. Uh, Google Short Box Comic Fair. It's 100 artists, 100 uh, digital comics, digital only. Uh, And there's some real gems in there. I have my cart loaded up. I'm just kind of fudging numbers see how much i can buy (laughs) (laughs) what's our next book going to be uh next we will be reading ducks by kate beaton trade winners is presented by cloudscape comics uh we'd like to thank sleuth for the music uh you can find us at apple music and soundcloud and tumblr and uh google music and somewhere else that i'm forgetting right now <laughs> uh thanks for listening. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. Sounds good.